The Devil Within, the hit true crime podcast, is back with a terrifying journey into the mind of a madman. In the 1970s, New York City had it all. Hip-hop, punk rock, and the son of Sam. The Devil Within, a season in hell, is available now wherever you get your podcasts. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. This podcast may discuss topics graphic in nature and possibly triggering to survivors. We value the safety and well-being of all of our listeners. So please practice personal discretion. Now, enjoy the show. Hey, I'm Paige. And I'm Natalie. We're the hosts of the Murder Diaries podcast. We bonded over tacos and true crime after we matched on Bumble BFF. You know, like any normal millennial using an app to meet new friends. Every Thursday, we upload a new episode. In each episode of The Murder Diaries, we tell true crime one story at a time. One week, it's my turn. And the next week, it's mine. You still think it's in my head, but I'm walking with the dead. Paige and I are starting a new segment, and we need your help. We want to tell your stories. We want to hear from you. Think post-secret, think hometown crime cases, true crime or true crime adjacent, paranormal, or even something you've never told anyone before. If you want to tell it, we want to hear it. It's completely anonymous, whether you sign your name or not. These are essentially diary entries. The segment's going to be called Dear Diary. And don't worry, it's not going to be taking place of your normal Thursday episodes. This is a whole new segment. For your submission to be considered, please email us at themurderdiariespodrequest at gmail.com. We can't wait to hear from you. All that being said, let's get to today's case. In May 2004, 19-year-old Brooke Wilberger was home in Oregon. She was visiting on her summer break from Brigham Young University in Utah. She had just finished her freshman year of college. While home on break, Brooke was working for her sister and her brother-in-law at an apartment complex that they managed in Corvallis, Oregon. It was situated right by the Oregon State University campus. That's when, one morning, while washing and cleaning up some light poles in the complex's parking lot, Brooke disappeared, leaving only two now mangled flip-flops behind. The search for Brooke would become the most publicized in Oregon's history. This is her story. Brooke Carol Wilberger was born February 20th, 1985 in Fresno, California. Her obituary does an amazing job of describing her, so I'm going to read it here word for word. Brooke Wilberger was a typical American girl, but an untypical American girl. She loved pizza, string cheese, and shopping for shoes at the factory outlet stores. She was a petite girl, but a fierce competitor who loved soccer and snowboarding. There weren't too many sports she couldn't have participated in because she was outrageously athletic, but there were only so many hours in the day. When she was just a tiny girl, Brooke had difficulty learning to talk. 
No doubt that experience led to her decision to go to Brigham Young University. BYU had the best speech pathology department, and she knew she wanted to help people overcome speech problems. Her summer job had been delivery, and she worked hard, proud to pack on some new muscle from all the heavy lifting she had to do. She was soft-spoken, but she had a heart of thunder. She easily spoke up, even to an authority. She had a boyfriend named Justin, whom she met in high school. She loved an, quote, unhealthy, end quote, subway sandwich, water fights, and laser tag. She could be as serious and responsible as she could be silly. She was safety conscious, meticulous about personal finance, and an exceptional student. She was breathtakingly beautiful, but she was completely without guile. Brooke loved pink, and her memorial service was splashed with pink in every form, from the balloons to the attire of her family and friends. Brooke's parents know some people think there's no such kid as a Brooke Wilberger. Nobody's that good, they say. But in our minds, someone like Brooke is a regular kid. May she rest in eternal peace. End quote of the obituary. Brooke may have been born in Fresno, California, but her family made their way up to the Eugene area of Oregon. She was one of six children, the second youngest. Brooke had three sisters and two brothers. Her family was a part of the Church of Latter-day Saints, the Mormon faith. With that, Brooke actually looked forward to becoming a missionary one day and possibly even serving that mission overseas. This article is from nine years ago, but according to NPR, in 2013, 24% of Mormon missionaries were women, and I'm not sure what percentage of that are serving overseas, but it is known to be rare. Brooke's boyfriend, who was mentioned in the obituary, was actually serving as a missionary in Venezuela at the time of her disappearance. Brooke's friend Jessica recalls Brooke being, quote, one of those people that everyone likes, end quote. Jessica goes on to explain in her interview for the documentary that I watched, which as always is listed in the show notes, that Brooke won prom princess one year, but she didn't even show up to the ceremony because she didn't think she would have won such a title. And beyond that, she was busy at the time of the ceremony volunteering somewhere else on the high school campus. And apparently this is just... Such a Brooke thing to do. After winning Prom Princess, Brooke graduated from Elmira High School in 2003. She then headed to Brigham Young University in Provo, Utah. She wanted to become a speech pathologist and help others, just as the obituary I read mentioned. That takes us to May 24, 2004. 19-year-old blonde, blue-eyed Brooke now stands at 5 feet four inches tall, and weighs about 105 pounds. She's home for the summer visiting, and she's working for her sister and brother-in-law at the Oak Park Apartments, which they manage. Around 9 a.m., Brooke was tasked with cleaning up some of the lampposts in the parking lot. Her sister Stephanie leaves for a few hours. They say goodbye, see you later. But when Stephanie returned, Brooke was nowhere to be found. Brooke's car was still in the parking lot, and her purse and keys were inside where she had left them. The bucket and cleaning supplies that Brooke was using were still out by the light poles. What was also by the light poles, along with the cleaning supplies, were Brooke's flip-flops. They were white with light blue rubber straps. One of them was clearly broken. The strap had popped out of the top of it. They were lying separately, away from each other. Stephanie's husband calls 911 around 2.30 p.m. The Corvallis PD responded and they arrived by about 3.15 p.m. They considered the scene to show foul play pretty quickly. 
Detective Woods said that the way the flip-flops were scattered, leaving Brooke barefoot, the fact that her car, phone, purse, including her ID and access to banking, having been left behind were red flags. Specifically, he says, quote, everything she would need if she were going to leave on her own was still here, end quote. Captain John Sassaman says the way the flip-flops were scattered indicated that Brooke was most likely forced into a vehicle. He also mentions that if Brooke had been dragged somewhere near, they would have expected more than the flip-flops and cleaning supplies left at the scene. What he's saying here is that it really just looked like what had happened. Brooke was picked up from exactly where she was. So that was the theory they began building. She was taken by a vehicle right where she had been cleaning. The scariest part about this theory is that where Brooke had been abducted from, where that parking lot sat, was just west of I-5. Most of us on the West Coast are super familiar with the 5 because it goes all the way from Canada to Mexico. It spans 1,381 miles. That's over 2,200 kilometers. Yeah, I agree. This theory is very scary because Brooke could be anywhere. That being said, Corvallis PD wanted to make sure that they activated every resource that they could for Brooke and her case. That's why they quickly called in the FBI for assistance. And with that, the search for Brooke was in full swing. Around 300 people showed up to help search within an hour. Strangers, family, friends, and even fellow teacher colleagues from the school that Brooke's mom taught at. The school was about 40 miles away, but they still showed up to help. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. Is your daily grind getting you down? A Thermospas hot tub may be the solution. Just a few minutes under those powerful, soothing jets, and all your stress seems to melt away, like you're lying on a cloud of bubbles. You'll not only feel better, but sleep better, too. Call 877-861-4672 now. And for a limited time, save $1,250. Call 877-861-4672 or visit thermospas.com to schedule a free on-site assessment. As night fell, law enforcement and the searchers were becoming less and less likely to find Brooke. The next day, on May 25th, Corvallis PD held a press conference to inform the community about Brooke's case. Meanwhile, Brooke's family is sleep-deprived, unable to rest, just trying to process what's going on. Investigators were right there with them, though. They were also working really hard. Some of them had been up for 36 to 40 hours, according to Captain Sassaman. There was no sign of Brooks still, though. The community was truly shaken. Corvallis is not a high-crime community, according to Captain Sassaman, and they wanted answers. They wanted to find Brooke, and they didn't want anyone else to go missing, too. Law enforcement ended up getting about 2,000 tips in the first 24 hours of this case. One of the earlier tips was about a woman being approached the same day Brooke went missing by a white man in a green minivan. He was asking her for directions, and this happened only a block away from where Brooke went missing. Unfortunately, they didn't have a license plate to go off of, and that left 
law enforcement with 10,000 green minivans to try and narrow down. It just was not possible to do so quickly enough for this tip to help at the moment. And as Captain Sassaman says in regards to tips, quote, you have to find the ones that connect the dots, end quote. And for right now, the dots from the leads were not connecting the law enforcement to Brooke. Part of the tactics they used were tracking down known offenders in the area that they think could be responsible for Brooke's disappearance. This didn't bring much luck, though. One of the leads that this tactic led to was a man that had been stealing underwear in the laundry room at the Oak Park Apartments where Brooke had been abducted. It was a laundry room either at the apartment complex or very near. It's a little unclear from the resources. At any rate, this led to law enforcement raiding this man's home on May 29th. During this raid, they found really disturbing files documenting what he wanted to do to a woman that he'd been stalking. They found violent pornography on his computer, um, as well as a physical cataloging or filing of all of the underwear he had been stealing. But nothing that led to Brooke. His alibi checked out. He literally had receipts for a purchase that he made 70 miles away at the time that Brooke had been abducted. However, this man was arrested and sentenced to 11 years for theft and child pornography. Take this with a grain of salt because it is from Reddit. But according to this Reddit post, this suspect stole 3,400 pairs of underwear from seven different colleges in the state in addition to that laundromat. And... Because there was no evidence in the end with his connection to Brooke's case, the state ended up paying him $331,000 in a settlement. That is absolutely wild and disturbing. Back to Brooke more specifically, her family and friends held a prayer vigil on May 31st, 2004 in her honor. She'd been missing for a week at that point. The next day, on June 1st, 2004, the official ground search for Brooke was unfortunately called off. Months passed with little movement in the case. Then, on September 29th, 2004, a woman was out jogging about a block and a half away from where Brooke had gone missing. A man attacked her, but she was prepared with pepper spray after knowing about Brooke's abduction. She used it and thankfully got away. What's great is that she used the type of pepper spray that included a fluorescent colorings. This would eventually help investigators identify the perpetrator. The woman gave law enforcement a description, and that was really all they had to go off of, though. Then a tip came in from a woman that told them that it was her brother-in-law. And what's even more gross is that this attack actually happened while the man was having a baby. He was a piece of work, but... He also had an alibi for Brooke's case, and he got a year in prison, and Brooke's case remained unsolved. Tips were still coming in, and they had more than 4,000 and counting at that time. Finally, on December 7th, 2004, a phone call came in that cracked the case wide open. It was a call from a police department 1,400 miles away in New Mexico. They had arrested a man named Joel Patrick Courtney and had questions about a warrant he had for his arrest in Corvallis. An article from Oregon Live mentions that the call was regarding a sexual abuse charge from 1991. However, the documentary I watched, as well as another article from The Oregonian from August 2005, said that the call was regarding a DUI charge. But either way, this police department in New Mexico It really sounds like they just wanted more information from Oregon on this guy. 
He was actually being held on a $100,000 bail there in New Mexico for an attempted kidnapping and sexual assault of a University of New Mexico student. Uh, It had happened on November 29th. He had abducted, bound, and sexually assaulted a Russian foreign exchange student. She luckily and bravely got away when he had left the car for a fleeting moment. She ran into a restaurant naked with a shoelace still tied around her neck. This part really grinds my gears, but the restaurant told her that she had to leave. They told a naked woman who had been attacked with a shoelace around her neck that she had to leave. Luckily, there were two women that stepped up and helped her. She told them that someone had a knife and he was trying to kill her. That's when they spot him. He was waiting to try and attack the young woman again. They locked their car doors as he watched them. He eventually drove away and they called police. They were able to give a full description of what the attacker looked like and his vehicle. Police tracked him down and the young woman was able to identify him. That's how they found out that it was Joel Patrick Courtney. So now back to the phone call. After receiving it, law enforcement in Oregon went ahead and looked up Joel's record. They wanted to see what they could find for the New Mexico police. It turns out in January 2004, Joel had been arrested on a drunk driving charge. This is most likely the same DUI charge that we were talking about a little bit earlier. On May 24th, 2004, remember, this is the same day Brooke disappeared, Joel had failed to appear in court for that DUI charge. Oregon's Lincoln County Court records documented that Joel had called to report that he was on his way to the court from Corvallis, but he never showed up. The assault on the student in New Mexico was similar enough to what they theorized had happened to Brooke, and the records placed him in Corvallis the day Brooke went missing. So law enforcement in Oregon definitely wanted to know more about this guy, too. That phone call from New Mexico police quickly became tip number 4,467. They wanted to see if they could link Joel to Brooke's disappearance in any way. They did this by going through all of the old tips again. That's when they come across the old lead I mentioned in the beginning. The woman being approached by the man in the green minivan. They bring her in and they ask her to identify the man that approached her in a photo lineup. And guess what? She identified Joel. Brooke's mom says she felt like, quote, that was an answer to my prayer. Now Joel was the main suspect. And in the meantime, he was sentenced to 18 years in prison for the sexual assault and abduction of the New Mexico student. On August 2nd, 2005, detectives serve a warrant on Joel down in New Mexico. He was offensive and refused to cooperate. Captain Sassaman remembers that, quote, he thought it was a joke, end quote, and that the way he acted, quote, offends to your very being, end quote. Law enforcement knows, though, that they still need to link him to Brooke through evidence. They decide, you know what, the best way to do that is to locate and search that green minivan. Within three days, that van was taken apart and scoured for evidence that might link him to Brooke. And their efforts were not wasted. They found a strand of blonde hair in the minivan. The hair strand was sent out for testing and the Wilberger family, along with law enforcement, awaited the results. On May 24th, 2005, one year to the day of Brooke's disappearance, those results came back. Captain Sassaman refers to the results as showing, quote, co-mingled DNA, end quote. Basically, they showed the DNA of both Brooke and 
Joel. This solidified that unfortunately, Brooke would not be coming home and that Joel was at fault for her murder. In April of 2008, Joel was officially extradited to Oregon. A year and a half after that, after four years of law enforcement trying to get a confession from Joel, in September 2009, Joel finally admitted to murdering Brooke and let them know where he could find Brooke's body. Her mom says, quote, that was the hardest day probably of my life, end quote. Joel's confession was all part of a plea deal. With this plea deal, he avoided the possibility of a death sentence. He also was leveraging his ability to complete his life sentence without parole in New Mexico. Apparently, this is where he has some family or something, so he wanted to serve there, and that's why he was leveraging that. With this confession, we find out what happened to Brooke on May 24th, 2004. After attempting to abduct two other women that morning, hence the lead about the green minivan, he finds Brooke. He approached her, pretending to deliver a package and needing help finding the apartment to deliver it to. He then grabs her and abducted her at knife point. Joel then drove them out west into the foothills of Oregon's Coast Range Mountains. He held her there, bound, until the next day, May 25th. He sexually assaulted her, and Brooke fought back. Joel tells law enforcement that he knew he had to kill her because, quote, her demeanor changed, end quote, after he assaulted her, according to Captain Sassaman. That's when he bludgeoned her with a piece of wood, ending her life, and he buried her in the woods. He packed her body with soil and other material, which created what Captain Sassaman refers to as, quote, an above-ground tomb, end quote. And I know, Natalie, you've got even more information as to the location and the area where this above-ground tomb was created. Some resources mention the location as off an old logging road that doesn't appear on maps. And others say it's a secluded forested area off Highway 20 between Blodgett and Wren. And I tried my best with that pronunciation. Don't come for me, Argonians. Yeah, don't come for us. And thank you, Natalie, because that definitely painted a bigger picture of where this above ground tomb was. Thinking about that above ground tomb just seriously gives me chills. And I feel for Brooke's family and her loved ones so much. Her mom is literally so incredible. She says things like, quote, my last memory and image of her is, you know, just this bright, vivacious Brooke. I think I've healed enough that I can take great comfort in who she was and just the knowledge that she would have done great things too end quote. Her strength is seriously so apparent here. And I think that it's such a beautiful statement after such a horrible thing. That's where we'll be leaving this episode for this week. However, um, until our next episode, you know where to find us at the Murder Diaries pod on Instagram and TikTok at the Murder Diaries pod request at gmail.com. If you want to send us a story, don't be a stranger. And if you haven't already, go ahead and rate, review, and subscribe to us. We're available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Your five stars mean everything. And until then, stay safe. Bye. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. 
Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.